Have you ever heard of a guy named King Solomon? I bet you probably have. During his life, he was the wisest man in the world. Just think about that. Wouldn't that be incredible to be the wisest man on the face of the earth? But here's something interesting about Solomon. Despite his great wisdom, he decided that there were some things he only could know through personal experience. So he decided to try everything that life had to offer. And he pursued all kinds of material pleasures, and he pursued all kinds of material success. And the end result was that he was rich in money, rich in possessions, rich in accomplishments, and rich in the sensual pleasures of life. Solomon wrote about those experiences in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and you know what he concluded about all of that? He said, it's all futile. It's all vanity. Trying to find meaning in those kinds of things, he said, is like trying to catch the wind. And that's because the riches of this world offer no lasting satisfaction. Only God can meet our deepest needs. And here's what's really tragic. Solomon learned that lesson the hard way, and he wrote about it in detail 700 years before Jesus, and yet the human race rarely has embraced what he taught us. We keep making the same mistake generation after generation. And therefore, we need to keep relearning this fundamental lesson that the pursuit of earthly riches will not actually give us what we want. Thankfully, God shows us a better way through his get-rich plan. Rather than just give us stuff, God offers us deep riches. Riches that feed our hearts and our souls. Riches that enable us to live in peace with God and with each other. Riches that enable you and I to live each day with peace and joy and hope. Riches to have lives that truly are fruitful. All of this and more becomes clear through the book of Ephesians. And as we dig into this timeless, the the timeless wisdom of this portion of Scripture, you and I are going to learn how God's get-rich plan empowers us to flourish in every area of life. And so we're going to dive into the first portion of chapter 1 today and see what God has to say to us. And since this is a letter, then at the outset we need to understand just who the author is and who his readers are. So let's take a look at verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1. By the way, before I read, this little kind of logo over in the corner, that is one side of what's called a Jesus coin. And if you come to our lunch after church, you'll learn more about what that means and what it represents. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we have here a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And if you don't know about Paul, he was a faithful Jew who came to believe that Jesus was and is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that he's the only one who can rescue human beings from our sinful condition. Paul had a very dramatic conversion. And after he became a follower of Jesus, God personally commissioned him for a unique ministry. He was to be the messenger of Jesus to the non-Jewish world, that is, to the Gentiles. So Paul traveled widely throughout Asia Minor and Southern Europe, and he led many people to faith, and he started numerous churches. However, his activities ticked off the Jews and the Romans, and the authorities went after him. So as Paul writes this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome and awaiting trial. Now, house arrest under Roman rule was a very interesting experience. Paul lived in this rented home, paid for at his own expense, and he was under the constant oversight of a series of Roman guards who worked in four-hour shifts. And he was free to receive visitors. They could come and go, and he could have correspondence, but he wasn't really free to leave his house. Imagine what that kind of confinement would be like. Paul endured it for two years. Two years of house arrest. He knew that God did not want him to be idle, so one way he used that time productively was to write letters of encouragement to various churches. And we need to see God's hand in that. Think about it, if Paul had been free to travel, he would have written far fewer letters. And instead, God used this time of confinement in Paul's life to give us a huge chunk of the scriptures. It's vivid evidence that when bad things happen to us, God often is at work using those bad things to bring about greater good. That's what God did in and through Paul. We are blessed because Paul spent two years under house arrest. Now, we usually call Ephesians a book, but we do know it's a letter, and and this is really important because the fact that it's a letter means it's not a, a theological essay, it's not a general academic paper about spiritual matters, it's a piece of correspondence written by Paul to a particular group, and it's to the Christians living in Ephesus who Paul calls saints, and we don't want to get distracted by that word because in the Bible, saints simply is another word for a follower of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus is a saint, which is kind of a cool thing. Paul wrote to these particular believers at this particular time to encourage them and instruct them based on their particular circumstances. And the circumstances of their lives were extremely challenging because Ephesus was a city that was proudly Roman and proudly pagan. The Ephesian people avidly participated in the worship of the emperor Caesar. And they built a majestic temple to the mythic goddess Artemis. That temple attracted thousands of visitors annually. And it brought boatloads of revenue to the city. It was kind of like the way that the Strip brings so much money into Las Vegas. 
What this means is that if you were a Christian living in Ephesus, the culture was arrayed against you. There was a lot of ungodliness all around you. If you wanted to talk about spiritual matters and talk about Jesus, your neighbors would want to talk about idols. And if you spoke against their false gods, oh, your fellow citizens quickly would become your enemies because you were attacking their livelihoods and the financial well-being of the community. So as we think about our spiritual ancestors reading this letter, let's remember that in many ways their lives were similar to ours. We know what it's like to live among unbelievers who pursue other gods. We know what it's like to live and work in environments where we may feel like a lone voice as people of faith. We know what it's like living in an ungodly culture to need the support and prayer of other believers in order to live by faith in Jesus. The Ephesians faced all that, and we do too. So Paul's encouragement to the believers in Ephesus can apply very directly to our own circumstances. Now, before we get into the details of this letter, it's helpful to know two other things. First, Paul did not write these letters personally. He dictated them to a secretary, often his protege, Timothy. And so we shouldn't picture Paul sitting at a desk, writing out the words, and then editing and polishing and erasing and rewriting and carefully crafting every single word of every single sentence. We should picture Paul perhaps sitting in a chair, maybe striding around the room, just dictating, perhaps caught up in passion as he talks, spewing out a torrent of words while his secretary tries to get them all down. And because he dictates, I think that's one of the reasons why so often his letters are filled with these long, run-on sentences. And we're going to see some of that here in the book of Ephesians. Now, the second thing to know is that Paul is intimately acquainted with these believers. He started this church, and he spent three years personally ministering to the congregation. So there must have been a lot of personal feeling behind this letter and his knowledge of the people and his relationships with the people likely shaped some of his comments. For example, I, I like to picture Paul maybe dictating a certain phrase and then pausing and turning to Timothy, his secretary, and saying, oh, you know, those words I just spoke, I, I hope that Apollos will find those encouraging. I, I don't know if that actually happened, but... I like to think that it did, and I think it may have because I actually do that when I prepare sermons. When I sit at home or sit in my office and pray and write these messages, I often picture many of you. I try to think about how certain thoughts or ideas that God gives me to share in the messages might encourage you in your own journey of faith. I do that because we're personally connected. And this ministry that God has given me of preaching his word is a, it, it's a personal effort based on a personal connection and a personal relationship. And so I love to keep this exercise personal. I'm thinking of you 
as I write messages as a way to do that. So I like to think that Paul did that as well. But we do know that because of his connection with the Ephesians that this is a very personal piece of correspondence. And as he begins, he wants his dear friends in Ephesus to understand one incredible overwhelming fact. When we make the decision to put our trust in Jesus, then in response God drenches us with spiritual blessings. Why does he do that? Because God wants us to be spiritually rich. And that's what Paul writes about next. Let's continue on in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's a great term referring to Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. We don't really live in a letter-writing culture anymore. But if we were sending out a group email to friends, we might begin with some personal comments like, how you doing, or... How's the weather? Paul doesn't start off with anything intimate and personal because he's not writing this letter to catch up on the news. He's writing to instruct these believers. And so after his very brief introduction, Paul, writing the Ephesians, wham! (laughs) He just dives right into some very meaty topics. And the way he does it here is classic Apostle Paul. He loves to pack a lot of detail into these long sentences, and sometimes the content can seem a little overwhelming. But I think we'll be able to unpack the essence of what he writes. And the essence of what he writes is this. God wants to lavish riches on his children. And this aspect of what God wants to do for us is so important to him that he decided to do it, Paul says, long before he even created the world. That's why God chose us and predestined us. Yet those two words, chose and predestined, create a lot of confusion for people. And we'll miss the really important point that God wants us to grasp unless we understand who Paul is referring to when he says us. And this actually is tricky for us as Americans because we are conditioned to have a very individualistic perspective on life. And as a result, when we hear the word us, we subconsciously respond as if it means me as an individual member of a group. And that perspective greatly affects how we interpret Bible passages like this one. For example, when we as American Christians read this passage, we often understand it to be saying something like this. 
This is the individual interpretation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us individually in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us individually in him before the foundation of the world. See, that's how we understand this plural pronoun. It's about me first. But, but this individualistic perspective doesn't actually line up with the way God works out his purposes in human history. You see, we know from the Bible that God always accomplishes has his salvation promises through what are called covenant groups. We sometimes use the term chosen people. And so while we tend to start with the individual and then move to the group, God starts with the group and then moves to the individual. For example, as we learn from the book of Exodus, God chose the Jews to be his first covenant people. But he did not choose individual Jews to be blessed. He chose the group. Every individual who was part of God's group was blessed but you could not experience all the riches of God's blessings apart from his chosen group because that was the covenant group. Now, we, we usually understand that when it comes to the Jewish people, and we call them the chosen people, but we often overlook the fact that God works in the same way with Christians. Hundreds of years before Jesus, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and said one day he would establish a new covenant The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus established this new covenant by his death and burial and resurrection. And here's the key point. Just as with the old covenant, God did not choose individual people to be blessed under the new covenant. He chose the group. And the group no longer is the Jews. It's the church. The church of Jesus Christ, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. And every person who's part of this group is blessed. But we cannot experience all the riches of God's blessings apart from his chosen group. So when we realize that God's promises are given to and fulfilled through covenant groups, it changes the way we understand this passage. Let's take a look at it again. This is the covenant interpretation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, the church, because we're the us. Bless us, the church in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, the church in him, before the foundation of the world. And my, does that make a profound difference in our understanding. The implications are huge because it means that God's get-rich plan is not for you and me as individuals. God's get-rich plan is for us. And so for you and me to truly flourish and to enjoy God's riches to the fullest, then we need to be connected to and active in God's chosen community, which is his church. God's lavish riches are offered to the church and offered through the church. We're the ones to whom God has entrusted his truth and his promises. And so it's we, the church, who preach and teach and we share our faith and we baptize and we strive to draw people not just into the arms of Jesus but also into the community of faith because these riches belong to us and are shared by us and are celebrated by us and are most fully experienced when we do life together as us. 
God has designed us as individuals so that we will flourish best in community. Which means the life of faith is not designed to be a solo endeavor. That's why he gave us his church. And yes, people can receive the gift of salvation that the church offers and then they can walk away from life together in the church. And when they do that, they don't lose their salvation, but oh my goodness, they lose so much else. If we do not actively participate in Christian community, then we never will experience the full richness of life that God wants to lavish on us. And this is the vital, big picture idea of this passage. God wants to richly bless his new covenant community. And my guess is that this may be a new idea to, to some of you, and, and if so, I encourage you to ponder it and pray over it. And I really encourage you to, to think about your connection to the community of faith. And I urge you to develop a new appreciation for just how important it is for us to consistently walk with each other through the ups and downs of the life of faith. My life as a, Christ, as a Christian has been deeply enriched over the years by the wonderful friendships I've made in the church. Brothers and sisters in God's family have stood by my side during times of personal crisis. Brothers and sisters in God's family have prayed for me when I've screwed up and sinned and they've reminded me of God's gracious and loving forgiveness and helped restore me. They've shared with me the joys and the pains of their own spiritual journeys, which has broadened my understanding of our great God. God's lavish riches are designed to be continually embraced and shared and celebrated in our life together. And I know for a fact that my walk with Jesus would be immeasurably Horror if I didn't have people like you, the church, in my life. That's the big picture. Now for some of the details. Paul does give us a rather detailed list of some specific riches in this passage. And the reality is we could spend hours dissecting this. And that's really true. I once read a 20-page theological essay on the spiritual implications of verses 3 to 14. <laughs> 20 pages, tightly spaced, single-spaced, very dense stuff, okay? We're not going to go into that deeply. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. I want to do a quick review of some of the riches that God is lavishing on us. Verse 3. We've been given every spiritual blessing. Not just some, but all we need. And in ways we don't fully understand, Paul says these blessings are stored for, uh, for us in the heavenly places, which means that God's spiritual riches are for this life and the next life. And it is awesome to realize that a huge part of God's get-rich plan is to enable you and I to live with hope today for what lies beyond the grave. 
He gives to us so richly in order that we will not live lives of hopelessness. Verse 4. Before time began, God decided that every member of his church would be holy and blameless. Isn't that incredible? And it's not because we're perfect, it's because of Jesus' sacrifice. His gracious and merciful death on the cross means that the Heavenly Father does not see us as we are, but as we ultimately will be. And I love the fact that God chooses to view us as a finished product. Yet he puts up with us and he walks with us while he's still got us under construction. What a great gift. Verse 5, we are the adopted children of God, which means we have a perfect, flawless, heavenly Father who watches over us and who always, always, always has our best interests at heart even when we don't fully understand it. And because we share a common father, then together we are his family. Verses 6 and 7, because of God's grace, we have received complete forgiveness of our sins. Not partial, but complete, with no strings attached. Wherever we've been, whatever we've done, when we bring it to the cross, it's gone. The God of heaven and earth has given us a fresh start simply because he loves us. Oh, what a lavish gift. And all these gifts are poured out on us, us, the church, us, the family of God. And the Father wants his children to do life together and care for each other and encourage each other, sharing the joy of these incredibly rich gifts because that's what loving, healthy families do. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would see the incredible value of all of this as we deal with the challenges of living in a broken world, a world full of ungodly stresses and strains. We have the privilege of walking together. It's not a burden. It's not a duty. It's not an obligation. It is a privilege. And we walk together on Sunday mornings as we worship and we walk together as we fellowship and pray for each other before and after the service. And we walk together as we interact during the week in our growth groups and when we gather for fun and recreation. And in all of these interactions, we can remind each other of the goodness of our God and the lavishness of his riches. And by doing so, we can strengthen the faith of one another so that each of us, regardless of the pressures and stresses, that each of us will grasp hold of Jesus tightly and never let go. God has chosen to drench us with his riches. Why would we ever want to settle for anything less than God's best? And here's what's really cool, as Paul's already touched on, God's best is going to last forever. His riches enable us to flourish in this life as we look forward to the next life. Because God's riches are eternal. And that's what Paul addresses next as he closes out this passage. Let's continue on in verse 11. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of, the tr- of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul now shifts his focus a little bit, and and once again, we can grasp his meaning by paying attention to these different plural pronouns he uses. I'm sorry if this feels like something of a grammar lesson today, but, but properly understanding the pronouns really is the key to getting this passage right. And what we see here is that Paul is continuing to talk about God's covenant people. First in verse 11, he talks about we. That refers to the Jews, God's original chosen people. And it was some of the Jews, some of those chosen people, people like Paul, who were the first to believe in Jesus. That's the we. And then in verse 13, Paul talks about you, and this refers to the Gentiles like the Ephesians who were included in the community of faith when they believed. And then here's the richest part. In verse 14, Paul talks about our inheritance. Because through Jesus, now Jews and Gentiles together have been united in this new covenant community called the church. So it's we the Jews, you the Gentiles, our mutual inheritance. And oh, what a privilege to be united with all kinds of people in God's chosen covenant group, the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that when we follow Jesus, we get to be part of this group now and forever. God guarantees it. And here's how he guarantees it. When we repent and put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we're baptized and when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit comes and actually lives within us. Now now we say that, but do we really understand the implications? It's mind-boggling to realize that part of Almighty God lives within every follower of Jesus. That blows me away. I find, my, find it hard to get my head around it. But it's true. And Paul wants us to know that the Spirit's presence guarantees that God really is with us and that our hope of eternity is not futile. And to emphasize the power of God's guarantee, Paul uses this image of a seal. He says the Holy Spirit is our seal. Well, back in that day, royal decrees often were embossed with the seal of the king so that everyone would understand the authority and legitimacy of that particular decree. The seal was the sign of the king's authority. Well, guess what? Paul says we've been marked with the royal seal of our king. And our seal is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 16, the apostle Paul writes that the Holy Spirit, when he comes into our lives, he bears witness. 
to our spirit that we are the children of God. That's God's royal seal on our souls. So the Spirit's presence assures us that God's promises are true. The Spirit's presence uh, reassures us that there is life beyond the grave and that there will be a new heaven and earth and that we will get to live forever full of joy and at peace in the presence of our loving God. So the spiritual riches that we experience here and now are but a small foretaste of what eternity will be like. Because God's plan is to make us rich. And this is a plan that will last forever. And oh wow, is that different than what happens with earthly riches. All the stuff that we spend so much effort to acquire in this life, we know what happens, right? The old saying, you can't take it with you. It gets left behind. But God's riches, we get to take those with us. We have them now, and we're going to have them for eternity. Our incredible God has an amazing get-rich plan. And the question for us is, are we going to embrace it? We can experience the best that God has for us by choosing to daily walk with Him and by doing life consistently in relationship with one another, His church. I recently ran across the story of Hetty Green, a very interesting woman. She was called America's Greatest Miser. Wouldn't that be a great nickname to have? Hetty earned that title because she was an incredible cheapskate. For example, she would eat her oatmeal cold because it cost money to heat it. She wore one simple black dress every day until it wore out, and then she would buy a new one. Once, she allegedly spent all night searching for a lost stamp worth two cents. And here's a tragic result of her almost obsessive miserliness. Her son, Ned, had a leg that was sick and needed treatment. She spent so much time looking for a free clinic to take care of him that his case became incurable and the doctors had to amputate his leg. Now, if Hetty was that careful with money, because she was, in fact, frightfully poor, well, we might have some ability to understand that. But Hetty Green wasn't poor. She was amazingly, lavishly rich. She had made a fortune through her investments on Wall Street and was known as a wizard of finance. When she died in 1916, her net worth was more than one billion dollars, making her the wealthiest woman in America. So just think about that. Hetty Green had access to incredible riches, yet she lived like a pauper. I see her story as a powerful metaphor for the spiritual life. 
we have access to the incredible, lavish riches of God. Yet some Christians choose to live like paupers, as if we're spiritually poor, but it doesn't have to be that way. Through these words that we've encountered, written by the Apostle Paul, I think God is inviting us to embrace God's riches in all of their fullness. And one way for us to do that is to make a renewed commitment to us. To be an active, vibrant part of God's family. So that together we can help each other continually embrace God's riches. So that we can help each other continually celebrate God's riches. And as we do that together, week by week, I believe that we can help each other then experience the very best that God has for us in this life as we live with hope for the life to come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so very much for your loving generosity. And we thank you for choosing to make us spiritually rich as we connect with you and with your church. And I pray that we never would settle for second best, but instead that we would enthusiastically and passionately embrace all the riches that you want to lavish on us both now and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.